recording is on. All right, so the recording is on. We're good to go. And this is my guest, Trout Face, who has appeared before more than once on this delightful little podcast. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Trout Face. I've appeared more than once on this delightful podcast. You sure have. And you still are very trout-like. And yeah, in more ways than one. Yeah. You prefer do you prefer books or stream books or streams, I mean. Um I guess I've with the way media content is on the internet, I've really acclimated to streaming services, but <laughs> I'd be okay if book services became more pr- prominent. Yeah. So um today we're gonna be discussing Ash versus Evil Dead, and also an episode of Tales from the Crypt that is very heavy in Humphrey Bogart. So I've got, I've actually taken some notes here, and uh, so here's an overdue, overdue overview of Ash versus Evil Dead. You know, it's a, it's a horror comedy TV series that premiered on Stars. In 2015 and concluded in 2018 after three seasons. It serves as a continuation of the Evil Dead film series, which began with the 1981 film The Evil Dead, directed by Sam Raimi. So, um, what are your thoughts on you know the original Evil Dead first? Um, I I really like the Evil Dead movies. Uh, I think Evil Dead 2 is a little bit better. Uh, It takes itself less seriously, and I think it finds its voice a lot more quickly. Um, And then the Army of Darkness, I thought was well done. I think there was an already really well-established voice, and they were very creative with it. Yeah. And I think the same is true for the show, Ash vs. Evil Dead. I think that... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to to interrupt. Oh, there's an established voice that... um, But there's also a lot of room for creativity, and I think they do some innovative things with camera work. And then they also do some callback things with camera work, but it still seems innovative because of how creative and well-integrated it is. Yeah. Well, one thing I have to brag about is that I actually did an interview piece with Joseph Loduca, the composer of the evil dead series so that's pretty cool you can find that article or that interview article over at 1428elm.com and really the interview pieces don't get that many they really don't get that many clicks or views as somebody might think so go ahead and check that out it's interesting i'm not just talking to you trout face i'm i mean anybody out there who might be listening to this little episode I had to do a little bit of plug of a plug. Yeah, that's good though, because you've you've got this trout face hooked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, of course, the series stars Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams, reprising his role from the original films. Ash is now working as a stock boy at a value stop where he accidentally reads from the. Necronomicon Ex Mortis, unleashing evil spirits known as Deadites upon the world once again. So, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are your thoughts 
thoughts on deadites and you know the fact that he was working at this uh sort of walmart like place i um so i worked at a walmart like place for a long time and i understand the profound boredom that comes with that yeah like i could see working there and wanting to read from the necronomicon yeah um so i, I can identify with that um i one thing that i think of with the deadites is their powers or their abilities aren't really well defined which makes them scary but it also kind of makes the world a little harder to understand that's true yeah so it's um, i mean it's for me there's a little bit of a nightmare on elm street effect with that because freddy's powers are never 100 percent defined either but it's also implied that you know a lot of it has to do with the power of imagination and you know will and it's it seems like if you have courage you're more likely to be able to defeat a demon or something like that and that's similar to what happens you know with freddy krueger of course it's a mind over matter kind of thing yeah i do always have questions though so they possessed ash's right hand in the yeah. original movies um and then I was wondering, like, after they did that, did something happen with Ash where he can't be possessed anymore? Because it seems like there's a limit to the number of attempts they have with possession. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, the the whole thing about uh, there's like a preordained aspect to the storyline because there, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, sort of mysticism somehow tied into Ash's story. Which is almost contradictory because he's kind of an everyman sort of thing. But at the, at the same time, he's like more than that. So it's a it's a little bit confusing, but somehow Sam, Sam Raimi has this power to still make it work. I think that's really one of his gifts as a filmmaker is that he can sort of make you not care about plot holes or things that are indefinite. Or undefined, yeah. I mean, not indefinite. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't even talk. <laughs> I, I think there's a... I've noticed... And I think the one reason why this goes well with that Tales from the Crypt episode is the camera shots are a bit comic book-like. Yeah. And I think that stylized sense does carry some of the storytelling in a very good way. I think it does help move things along so ash can simultaneously appear heroic but also kind of daft oh yeah he's definitely got a lot of i wish i can't remember any of his lines offhand but some of them are pretty funny like uh yeah like when he's get when that uh state trooper tries to arrest him and he's hitting on her the whole time and he thinks they're going to like meet in the bathroom and have sex oh yeah yeah that's true and there's also uh a line about him where he, where he recommends going to take uh, Ray Santiago's character and Kelly, played by Dana DiLorenzo. What was that? Oh, that was my alarm. Jesus. For 6.30. Okay. I don't think it was Jesus, but... <laughs> well, anyway, he was promising to take them, you know, out for some churros, and he's telling... He tells Pablo, and that's not because you're Mexican. It's just because churros are a 
delightful snack or something like that. And then Pablo has to remind him that he's not actually from from Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. That's that's one of the funnier lines. I think that's in season one. And yeah. I do apologize a bit for my voice, but I've got a bit of a cold, so I might sound even more Kermit the Frog-like than normal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or you Rick Moranis. Oh, not Rick Moranis. Jeez, what... What's the name of the guy from uh like Jim Henson? Ghostbusters. Dude played Egon. Sam uh I was gonna say Sam Raimi, but it's um... <laughs> I can't think of his name. Oh my god. Hold on, I'm gonna look that up. Egon from Ghostbusters. It says played by Harold Ramis. Ramisy. I couldn't even think of Harold Ramis' name. I think I have early onset Alzheimer's. But anyway, that was one of the funny lines. And of course, we've got Pablo and Kelly, played by Ray Santiago and Dana DiLorenzo. And then you have a new ally slash villain named Ruby, played by Lucy Lawless. And they all kind of set out to stop the Deadites and save the world. So, um... What what are your thoughts on like the do you think they should save the world or would would if you were in their place would you try to save it yourself or just kind of kick back and see what happens? I um so when I think of the episode where they're in the Michigan where they're like captured by the Michigan militia and Ash and the state trooper are locked in the I think it's a bomb shelter underground. Yeah. And just the general way they're treated, I think that would make it hard for me to want to save humanity. I think I might kind of give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, and, I guess I guess that's the difference between somebody like Ash and somebody like us. Yeah. Yeah. Of I, course, one of the one of the reasons Ash might be feeling a sense of obligation is because he actually triggered the problem. To begin with, by reading from the book. Yeah, I think I would have probably, if I were in that position, if I had such a book, I'd probably lock it in a safe and yeah. then just never open it. Yeah. And possibly even bury the safe somewhere, but even that seems risky. I'd probably keep it in my residence in like a fire safe locked. So as we already established, the series features the signature humor and over-the-top violence of the original films with Ash often using his chainsaw hand and boomstick to dispatch the Deadites. And it was well-received by both critics and fans of the original films for its faithful continuation of the series and its ability to balance horror and comedy. So that's one of the things I want to mention here is that it would actually be pretty tricky to do that balance because there are there are some definite moments in the in the series and the movies that are just so slapstick goofy but then there's still some genuine moments that are like creepy and a little bit scary and all that it's it's hard to be that zany yet still have it be scary at all yeah my favorite episode that balances that 
is the one where they summon that demon in the salt circle. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's pretty early in season one, so maybe like episode three or something. But I think that balances so well because Ash has this bravado, and it's pretty obvious that he's making some ridiculous assumptions about the demon, like he thinks it's a nerd demon that he can bully. <laughs> that is and, pretty funny when he's like treating yeah. it like it's a nerd, like a like he's a high school bully, and you can just you know, bash, bash the nerd or whatever. It's, it, it really shows his naivete. Yeah. And his, his, um, bravado. Yeah. It's kind of like this enthusiastic, never ceasing confidence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another scene that really, uh, I almost don't want to admit that I like the scene, but it's when he's in the morgue. And he basically ends up with his head up the uh, dead body's butt and stuff like that. Because, you know, it's, it's such a gross out scene. And it's obvious that they were, you know, trying to go for the low bar humor on that. So I almost don't want to even admit that I found it as funny as I did. But it, it is good. Yeah. Yeah, I do like the practical effects they have with the the bodies that they're cutting open it, it which is something that i think tales from the crypt also does really well yeah um so i think there's some overlap there with and the sound effects are well done like the squish sounds and the oh yeah and the slop yeah. and gore and uh you know i'm, I'm going to talk about a few of the other stars too you had jill marie jones as amanda fisher in season one who played a michigan state trooper who set out to find Ash following following the death of her partner. And uh, I wish that they... I mean, this is a spoiler alert, but I, I wish they hadn't killed her off. I almost shouldn't bother with spoiler alerts because this shows up. You know, it's been over for a while now. But what are your thoughts on their killing her off? Uh, they make her a very unlikable character pretty early on the way she betrays um in the in the same episode where they were they summon that demon in the salt circle yeah they uh, she that state trooper betrays kelly and um and really villainizes ash in a way that seems to get the audience against her and then in the next episode there's like this budding romance and then yeah. she dies and becomes a deadite so there's a lot of fast action going on. So the audience doesn't really settle with an opinion or doesn't really. See, I, I kind of disagree. I think, I think I, I can say that I was expecting her to be, you know, uh, maybe a main character that would go throughout the entire series run or something like that. Maybe, maybe she would have been expended further down the line, but I kind of think, Maybe the show would have even been more successful if they had kept her on. That's how I yeah. think about it. Yeah. Um, she has so many broad identities on the yeah. show in like a short span of episodes. Um, That's true. I suppose some people were like a little bit confused about what, where they were going with the, char the character. Yeah, because they, they also save Kelly. So... 
it, it's reasonable for the audience to wonder, can they save her, the state trooper? Yeah. Um, but it, it like the, in terms of saving people from possession, it seems like that's maybe only the shaman character can do that, or it seems like it's something that's not easily done. Well, like I said earlier, I think it has to do with a person's strength of will, yeah. too. Because not, definitely not everyone, you know, in the film series who was possessed had survived. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's been pretty well established that uh, some people can come back, but definitely not everybody. So what are your thoughts on Lee Majors as Brock Williams, Ash's father? That was um that was a fascinating choice. Yeah. And and not to sound ageist, but I wouldn't have thought Ash's parents would really be on the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I think it's a good addition and I think it really lets the the show explore some of Ash's backstory and Yeah kind of get a sense of the and maybe the like how the bravado and trauma served him before yeah the the 80s well it's also it's also of course the case that brock is a, a bit like ash and you know his attitude and all that kind of stuff and his and his behavior yeah so there's a bit of a father like father like son sort of dynamic and then you've got alan sandweiss returning as cheryl williams who was of course in the original evil dead movie what do you have any thoughts on that one <laughs> oh i think her performance was pretty good like, yeah um i think it was a good callback um seemed to fit well it seemed to integrate well um and, and i was thinking about also with ash's father I th there's like this opportunity for the ash to see his behavior like his idiosyncratic behavior in someone else and it yeah. seems like there could be a really good self-reflection piece that comes from that um oh speaking of seeing his own behavior yeah. what did you think of the uh the puppet sequence <laughs> I think it's it works pretty well in the show. Like I could understand why some people might not agree with that, but yeah, um, I th I, th I thought it was zany and fun. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it fits the tone really well, and I don't think it disrupts the horror side of it. No. I think it I think it embeds itself well. I think if yeah, I think it really fits the overall tone of the show. And it's it's just zany to see a hand puppet, or whatever whatever those sock puppet I don't know, but it's it's basically, you know, just like a monstrous version of Ash. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's kind of a callback to Evil Dead Two, where his where his hand, you know, is demonically possessed. Yeah. So um, we also have the return of Henrietta Nobi. And uh, and all that kind of stuff, and the whole ashy slashy thing that was because you know he he killed all of his friends in that cabin. Oops, I said that word. 
I said the F word. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he killed That's all right. of his associates in the cabin. Yeah. So what, what do you think about, um, you know, all of his, his past coming back to haunt him? I think there's, um, so it's interesting because there's a lot of points in the show where, so early on, Ash is like clearly in this, takes this leadership position or takes this kind of bossy attitude, yeah. but he gradually integrates uh, Pablo and Kelly more and more where he's conferring with them or collaborating with them. And he gets kind of a phobic response when like random hikers come by or people like he just views everyone as a liability. And it seems like there's a profound loneliness that comes with that. Yeah. That, that he's kind of confronting and kind of not. Um, and a lot of that comes out sexually, which works well for the show's humor. Um, but I think it's an interesting psychological dynamic to view yourself as a liability and the savior. Yeah. And, and it's also interesting. I think that, you know, he was somehow able to like avoid getting in trouble for being in that cabin when, where all of his buddies died or were killed or whatever. And they apparently never pinned it on him. That's a little bit strange to me. Yeah. So that's like a, that could be considered a massive plot hole or something like that. Yeah, it kind of gets addressed with, like, the state troopers following him, but, like, that is a big thing to, you know, all those people die. Yeah. And one survives, and, you know, nothing really gets happened. Nothing gets questioned. And uh, he was even working at the uh, Walmart-like place, you know, of course. Well, anyway, I think we've talked about that show uh, pretty thoroughly. Do you have any more thoughts thoughts on it? No, I, I would recommend it to anyone that like the original. It's a pretty good continuation if you haven't seen it. Yeah. I would even say there are some moments that definitely rival the original trilogy. It's 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 that good that it doesn't really uh you know, I, I think very few people would say, Oh, I prefer the original movies like vastly more than Ash versus Evil Dead. So, um, are you still there? <laughs> yeah, I'm there. Okay. So, um, we're going to start talking about the Tales from the Crypt episode, You Murderer, now. So, that's that's actually the one that you originally wanted to talk about. So, yeah. I'll let you lead with that one. Um, so, I, I think what stands out from the episode is the special effects kind of come out and I think they'd come out to current audiences differently than how they would back in the day when the show when that episode first aired yeah um back in the day people were kind of impressed by it like they used CG to have a passable Humphrey Bogart in the show yeah and then it like and I think nowadays people might focus on how fake it is but I think the style around it there's almost like a like a comic book style and mirror shots and a lot of first person perspective that I think makes the episode very interesting. Yeah. Uh, the way Isabella Rosalini and John Lithgow interact with the camera is really cool. Like, I think it draws the, 
the audience in that makes it more palpable. Yeah. Um, and John Lithgow has oh. John Lithgow and um, and Isabel Rosalini have amazing performances. Yeah, I think it's a unique episode of Tales from the Crypt, which you know, if you don't know, that show lasted from 1989 to 1996. So a lot of us, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, would have seen it probably. And this episode is indeed unique because I used advanced visual effects for the time anyway, to incorporate footage of Humphrey Gobart, Gobart, (laughs) Bogart, who died in 1957 into a new story. So what do you, what do you think of that story anyway? Um, so it's the plot isn't like super interesting I'm not saying that the plot's bad, but it's not like overly unique. It's kind of like a murder mystery or like a murder. um, How can you like kind of the Columbo theme? Yeah. I think that genre is called how catch them. Like, you know who the killers are right away. How do they get their punishment? And tales from the crypt episodes typically end in punishment. So the audience knows what's coming. They just don't necessarily know how. And I think it's so well done because the the main character is dead and you see things through his perspective and it seems like they're just going to get away with it even though stuff goes poorly for them at first you know with that secretary arriving and yeah um <clears throat> kind of forcing their hand a little bit but the end of the episode i think is simple and elegant and kind of fits how this show works yeah well, it's sort of an interesting interpretation of death. Yeah. Because when you think of somebody being dead, you think of, you know, if you're if you're into the belief of an afterlife, you normally think they're oh they're going to be up in heaven or down in hell or maybe reincarnated or something like that. But he just stays within his body, really, as sort of a perpetual limbo. Yeah. Which is definitely, you don't really see that very often in any any stories. Yeah. So there's there's even that aspect of it that really kind of stands out a little bit. And the episode was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who is known for directing Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. And, you know, it was written by Gilbert Adler and A.L. Katz. And as you mentioned... It stars John Lithgow. What do you think of his? Per- you said his performance was good. What 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 stands out about John Lithgow to you in um, this episode? I think there's there's something about seeing someone on two angles because you see like kind of his kindness and affection. Yeah, um, and how he seems to care for Humphrey Bogart, and then you see how he, um, or know, whatever like the guy's rage. name is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see like his rage and his backstabbing and his panic, and his kind of like condescending attitude, and it it seems like like I, I see that a lot in authority figures. 
Yeah. Like that back and forth, like they're they're more fake public side than their real side, or maybe they're more angry side. Uh, so it, it's it makes him seem very real as a villain. Yeah, that happens all the time too. You know, yeah. I think I think when people get positions of power or authority, they they kind of naturally assume that they and that they need to need to put up a false front even if their job is relatively modest, you know, they kind of have to assume a different personality at times. And it's kind of an an interesting thing to watch because there's like a chameleon nature to it. And I actually think that, um, you know, people tend to view things as sometimes in terms of it is or it isn't. And I think, John Lithgow really shows a lot of the gray. Like, I think he does have real affection for Humphrey Bogart's character. And I think he has real animosity and disgust. Like, I think they both exist. Yeah. And I think that's how people are in real life. Like, they can, they can feel genuine affection and genuine, like, rage. And they'll have those conflicting motivations of wanting to see someone succeed and die. Yeah, and so... They, they want I, both to be true. I have kind of an interesting... Angle. It's not really a critique of the episode necessarily, but it's basically an examination of sort of what if, like what if the story had been written in a different way, you know, based on the appearance of the Humphrey Bogart character. You know, I'm a bit surprised the story didn't involve a main character who's, you know, a 1950s era private investigator investigating a murder or something and you know i could imagine the detective discovers someone has the ability to transfer people's souls into other bodies or something like that and you know maybe that's why the character looks and sounds like humphrey bogart or something something like that i'm i'm wondering why they didn't go with that sort of angle do you know what i mean yeah yeah, I could see that. Um, because to me, that would be more of a logical reason to have Humphrey, you know what I mean, Humphrey Bogart appear in it. Like, like maybe, you know, because and it could also tie in the film noir aspect because a lot of those stories had private investigators, you know. Yeah, because Humphrey Bogart's character in that episode is not a character he would have normally played no, in the forties and fifties, <laughs> like it's a pretty odd position because he, he's like a businessman CEO type. Yeah, and that's that's not so easy to picture. So you know, I'm I'm not saying it's a bad choice. I'm just saying it's it's a bit of a surprise. But I guess they were going for something different, yeah. something a little bit on a less less predictable uh, character, I suppose. Yeah, but you know, I could imagine. You know, Bogart is maybe the soul of Lithgow's character, and that's why his mirror image bears a striking resemblance to the late actor or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and here's another interesting thing. The episode is not narrated by Bogart himself, but by Robert Saatchi, even though they don't, they don't credit. I don't think they. I don't think they credit that guy as narrating it at all in the you know like in the opening credits 
I don't. I could be wrong, but I don't remember seeing him listed as Bogart's voice. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know, but you know, it's it's an interesting fact. And you know, you got the visual effects, the new scenes featuring the, uh, you know, blending together the footage of Bogart, and there's a bit of a twist ending, like you said, and uh, Isabella Rossellini, it, Rossellini is in it. We got Sherilyn Fenn and John Cassier as the voice of the Crypt Keeper. So what do you think of his Forrest Gump style introduction? <laughs> um, that was fascinating because it really makes the episode seem dated to me. <laughs> like if you take that out, it's the episode's a little more timeless. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad choice to have it in. Um, no. I, I think it's like it... I think it makes it kind of cool. Like, I don't think something being dated is necessarily bad. It's no. It sort of encapsulates it in the time that it's in. It, yeah. it prompts you to think of the the early nineties. Well, the Crypt Keeper is really just a a fetid character who tells a lot of corny dad jokes, yeah. Yeah. like he's old and rotten, but he's uh he's fun loving, and he is you know by, by being a cornball character. I think I think he has more leeway to tell uh, bad jokes and and uh, some corny segments. Yeah. So even if they were to, you know, put out an episode of Tales from the Crypt today, I think they would still do some of these old and odd references. They might reference like nineteen nineties movies or something. You know, I could imagine that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I could see them doing like like a Harry Met Sally parody. <laughs> and I think it would be okay even if it became even if Harry Met Sally became too obscure for like modern yeah. audiences to know, I still think it could work. And I think what? they would take that kind of risk. What would it be like scary Met Sally or something? Yeah. That's the kind of ch- cheesy shit that the Crypt Keeper might say. Scary McSally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could picture that. So um this yeah, this episode has a unique narrative approach. And uh do you have anything else uh that you'd like to say about it? Uh I think if um so I can understand if people don't like Tales from the Crypt because not every episode's a winner. Yeah. But um this one I think's worth checking out. If you're only going to watch a few, I think this might be one worth checking. Oh yeah, and, and another episode that's like probably my favorite is the uh one that has the killer Santa Claus in season 1. That's a great episode. That was the first one I saw of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. And I think I was like I think I might have been like 5 or 6 when I saw it. Yeah. At my, at my uncle's house, he had HBO. And I was so impressed by it. So I, like I like I thought someone's doing something cool with Santa. Like he's <laughs> different. And I really liked it. And that was also around the time where I saw The Lost Boys. That was the first R-rated movie I saw. And I was about five at the time. And I remember being really impressed by that. Yeah. I, almost like I like they were just breaking the rules and everyone was okay with it. Like you can have blood and cursing and explosions and it's cool and 
I don't know. My five-year-old mind enjoyed it. <laughs> you saw when you were five years old? I think so. I had um, an older cousin that rented it. Yeah, I know uh, Larry Drake does a great job as that crazy Santa in that one. I, I That's why I had to bring that up, because it's just such a classic. Oh, Larry Drake from Darkman? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I here I go. Here I go again. I have another opportunity to promote myself. I interviewed the production designer on Dark Man. So you another, be out there that's listening. Sam What's that? That's another Sam Raimi movie. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So um you people out there, if you're wondering who I am, well, you got an idea. Um I interview famous people sometimes. Well, I don't know how famous he really is, but you know, he was a production designer on a big movie. So yeah. I get to brag about myself once again. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, definitely check that uh, that interview out as well. And uh, so uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's a good <laughs> episode. I'm not sure if it's my favorite, but it yeah. would at least be in my top 10 if I went yeah. through and figured out what my favorites were. All right. So... Um, so Troutface, uh, he asked to be a part of this experience again. So I would like to thank you for uh, reaching out to me, and you have a good day, sir. Oh, yeah. no problemo, dude. <coughs> 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 <coughs>